So let us uh, go to the Lord one more time in prayer before we get into the word. Gracious God, we thank you once again for revealing to us uh, the truth of who you are and how things came to be, um, even from the very beginning. And we're grateful, God, that uh, for the amount of information and the way you gave us the information. And we thank you most of all that you made a way for us to be able to understand the information by the sending of your son, the living word, who laid down his life for sinners so that we could know you and we could understand the truth and we could worship you with all that we are because you have given everything to us in Christ. So I pray, Lord, that this time in your word would uh, be a blessing as we start this sermon series and it will um, be built upon in the coming weeks. And uh, so grateful and excited to be able to bring it now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, to start our sermon series today, I want us to read the scripture together. And since it's uh, pretty lengthy, I will not ask you to stand up once again like we normally do, because we're going to read the whole first chapter of Genesis. And we're actually going to go and finish the section, uh, which ends in chapter 2, verse 3. And so maybe it's been recently that you've been in Genesis yourself and you've read this and you know it backwards and forwards. And if that's the case, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. Um, but if not, it's been a while and you're not even sure of the order of the days and the order of creation and all of that. Um, all the better. We'll be blessed uh, today with the reading of the opening chapter of Genesis of the Bible. And so let's begin. Uh, it's going to be on the screen or you can follow in your Bibles. The one on the screen is the same translation as I'm using, the NASB 95 update. So that might be good uh, for all kind of just reading that together. But if you would, we don't normally do this, but if you read out loud with me, that would be great. OK, so let's start in Genesis chapter one. We're going to go all the way to two, verse three. Here we go. Genesis one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. 
God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Three more verses. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Great. Wonderful. Everybody enjoy that? I hope so. All right. Uh, we read the entire first chapter in the first few verses of chapter two. That's the first whole section of the first book of the Bible. And um, all that said and all that read, we're pretty much only going to get to verse one today. Sorry to disappoint anyone who's looking forward to more. Because I need to lay down some foundations. Uh, just There's a lot of information. There's a lot of issues. And there's a lot of everything. So today we're going to just lay down some, some needed, necessary foundations and um, give some information where required, and uh, we'll go from there, okay? So our sermon series title, finally, after many, many uh, pencils and pens and crossing out and deleting and all this, is simply this, Genesis 1 through 11, God's story of beginnings. God's story of beginnings. We talked about last week about History, right? Meaning his story, God's story. And this is his story of beginnings. And so, um, like I said, Genesis 1 through 2 is, is the creation. We're going to spend a number of weeks on the creation, which is the beginning of the universe. We're going to get into Genesis chapter 3, which is corruption, which is the fall of man, okay, the beginning of sin and death, according to God. 
And then Genesis 6 through 9, which is the catastrophe. That was our, our C for um, that, that portion of it. Catastrophe, Genesis 6 through 9. This is the beginning of life after the global flood. Okay, things were a little bit different after that. We're going to talk about those things as well. And then Genesis chapter 11 is confusion, which is the beginning of languages. So um, just a very basic outline of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And so we're going to spend a number of weeks on each of those, um, those C's, if you will. But let's start at the very beginning, which is Genesis 1, verse 1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This opening statement of the Bible is either true or not true. Either God created the whole universe or he did not. And it's interesting, as we observe the Bible and observe the scripture and observe even that very first verse, from the very beginning, the Bible confronts us with something that we can either accept as true or reject as false. And we asked the question last week in our introduction, is the Bible meant to be taken as literal history? A God's story of real events that happened in real time and tell how a real God has dealt with real people. Or should we take the Bible as symbolic allegorical stories which teach us important lessons about morality, ethics, and spirituality? I want to ask those of you who are not 100% convinced that the Bible is true and God's word, if the stories and events and details of the Bible are not literal history and not to be taken at face value, not to be understood as true factual events, an obvious question to consider is this. What's the point of anyone believing it? Wouldn't it be foolish to believe in something that is not factually true and not accurate? And as many others have pointed out, if you don't believe the Bible in its first chapter or its first sentence, when do you start believing it? At what point do we trust the Bible or anything that the Bible says? After the first couple chapters, again, is Genesis 3. Do we believe anything about the origin of sin and death, how sin came into the world? Genesis 6 through 9, we're going to believe in a flood, a universal global flood. Are we going to believe in what the Bible says about the origin of languages and the Tower of Babel? If we don't believe any of that, are we going to believe anything about Exodus and Moses as a historical figure and the Israelite people being freed from slavery in Egypt? Are we going to believe the next book, Joshua, when they enter into the the land? Are we going to believe in Judges, the nation of Israel without a king? Or do we start believing when they have kings, which is Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, which is the history of Israel? Are we going to believe then? How about the prophets? The prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, some were pre-exile, some post-exile. Are we going to even believe any of that? They were predicting things which happened within their lifetimes and things that happened later and things which have not yet happened. So why should we believe any of that if we don't start at the beginning? And this brings us obviously to the New Testament, right? We're called Christians because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we believe anything about Jesus, even his coming, even his life, even his death, even his resurrection, his, any of his teachings? Why should we believe any of that if we don't believe what's at the very beginning? And so Genesis 1 verse 1 is an incredibly important verse, obviously. And it's incredibly critical for us to pause and consider, especially in the light of what the world teaches, what so-called science teaches, and the theory of evolution and everything else. So I want to make some observations of the text today. And again, just lay down some foundational truths from the text Genesis 1, verse 1, 
Uh, I think it's important also to, to notice that, and it's interesting to notice that, this first verse immediately contradicts every popular human philosophy that people have come up with. Okay? I mean, you can break it down into six basic things that people have believed over the eons. Okay? Atheism, right? Just not believing that God exists. Well, Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God. Okay? God does exist. Pantheism, the belief that God is in everything. Okay? The creator somehow is part of everything and in everything. Well, God created the heavens and the earth. It says that God is distinct from his creation. What about polytheism? This is what other religions and other peoples of the world throughout the ages have come up with. Many, many gods, right? Well, the word created in Genesis 1 verse 1 is singular okay, in that verse. It's singular, which means monotheism, which means one God. One God, not many gods. Okay, also, there's radical materialism, which says that matter is eternal. Okay, matter has always just been there. Right? Well, according to Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, in other words, matter had a supernatural origin. Okay? Uh, emphasis on the origin there. The origin is God. And then there's naturalism, right? which is basically evolutionism. Creation took place. When someone outside of nature intervened, okay, it just didn't just uh, happen on its own. Someone outside of nature, outside of na- natural things, had to intervene, and the emphasis there is on process. And lastly, fatalism, what some people believe that just, you know, just things happen by fate and by, by chance, and there's just this, just this invisible force that um, is moving towards some uh, random goal. Well, Genesis 1 verse 1 says, a personal God freely chose to create. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, in the beginning, this is the opening moments of day one of creation. A description of the very first actual event of creation. This was the beginning of the the creation of the cosmos. The heavens and the earth, this is the universe. It's the world as we know it. It's the skies above, including space and all that's way, 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 way out there, and the earth below, this planet that we live on. There's no one single Hebrew word for universe. So this is an an expression uh, which denotes totality. It's the entire thing, everything. It's a figure of speech to denote totality. God created everything. And so uh, Pastor John MacArthur, he points out that Herbert Spencer, some of you may have heard of him. He's a famed English philosopher, psychologist, sociologist, biologist, anthropologist. Okay, in other words, a pretty smart guy. Um, but he was an evolutionist, an agnostic evolutionist. And he died in the year 1903 at the age of 83. And he said that all that is knowable in the universe can be summed up in five categories. Right? Time, force, action, space, and matter. And this man was heralded as a genius. So he said everything that exists can fit into those five categories. And when you think about Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, time, God, that's force, created, that's action, heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. Okay, all in one verse, from the beginning of the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. So notice that the opening verse of God's word simply assumes the existence of God. There's no explanation given. There's no argument for God. No description. No detailed information other than God created the heavens and the earth. The very first sentence of the Bible simply states and declares that God created. He did it. He's the actor. He's the subject of the action. He made everything that exists. He created it all. And the word there, some of you may know, that's used in Genesis 1.1, Hebrew is Elohim. Most scholars agree that that word is derived from El, which means mighty or strong, or mighty one or strength. So the Hebrew ending im there added to L 
indicates plurality. So why is that important? Well, it's because the use of the plural, Elohim, with the third person singular, verb, third person singular, created, um, this suggests plurality within the Godhead. Okay? So in Genesis 1, verse 1 through Genesis 2, verse 3, which we read together, Elohim, God, is described as the creator 35 times in those first 35 verses. Okay? 35, 34 verses of the Bible. Okay? Um, so it's worth expanding some on God, right? As we lay down some foundations here. So the plurality of God, once again, Genesis, uh, the, the next couple verses, verses two and three, it says that the earth was firm, formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God, Elohim, was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God, Elohim, said, let there be light. And there was light. So we know that the, the term Trinity is not in the Bible. But the creation by Elohim supports the involvement of the triunity of God, a father, son, and spirit. And I'm not saying that this proves the Trinity, but it does give us a hint of it, and it supports the doctrine which we find later as Scripture is is revealed in the rest of Scripture. So note that in this passage, God is not further identified. It doesn't say which member of the Trinity created. It was simply God. He leaves it there in 1 verse 1. And the rest of the Bible reveals that all three persons of the Trinity participated in creation. And so we could go to any number of verses uh, about God the Father. Hey, just, you know, I'll just throw them out to you. Isaiah 40 verses 21 to 28. Isaiah 43 verse 1 and verse 7. Isaiah 45, verse 12. I was going to read all these verses, but I decided right now not to do it because we have lots to get to. But Isaiah 48, verses 12 to 13. I could give you a bunch more, but um, jumping to the New Testament, Acts 14, verse 15. And then Acts 17, verse 24. Okay, what about the Son? What about Jesus? Well, John 1 Verses 1 to 3, which I know that many of us know and love. Uh, It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And verse 3 says that all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So the million-dollar question is, who is the Word? Verse 14 of John chapter 1 tells us, right? The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, of course, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten from the Father. And so um, you can tack on Colossians 1, verse 16, which um, a few years ago we were in Colossians. And uh, it's worth reading. Colossians 1, 16, for by him, talking about Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And when it says invisible things and thrones, dominions, powers, it even means spiritual beings. Jesus was the agent of creation of everything that we can see and and, and that we don't see, including angels. That's the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, verse 2, you can also add that one. I'm not going to read it. So what about the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit, which we're going to get to more next week, but uh, verse 2 is the most explicit verse of Genesis chapter 1 that tells us that. I, we just read it before. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And so um, you can add on Job 33, verse 4. Uh, these are a little bit less explicit, but they are implicit as far as the Spirit's work. The Spirit of God has made me. This is Eli who's speaking. Again, um, correct, accurate, or correct theology, but inaccurate application, right? The Spirit of God has made me, he says, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And then the other one regarding the Holy Spirit is Psalm 104, verse 30. Psalm 104, verse 30 says, You send forth your Spirit, and they are created, 
and you renew the face of the ground. Okay, so um, so I hope it's clear that it is the triune God who created everything, Elohim. Again, Genesis 1, verse 1, God created. This is the Hebrew word bara, and it emphasizes the initiation of something new. And this is very important to, to uh, take note of. He created the entire universe from nothing, okay, or out of nothing. The Latin is, what is it? Ex nihilo, right? Which means out of nothing. God did not just reform existing matter when he made the universe. He brought something totally new into existence. Uh, to quote Pastor Larry Richards, he says, Thus, we are immediately introduced to an eternal person who existed before the universe and who is himself its origin. There is no confusion about the relationship between Elohim and the material universe, no doubt as to which has precedence, and no uncertainty about the power possessed by Elohim God, end quote. So Elohim is used, again, 30-something times in those first 30-something verses of the Bible. In fact, there's only like four verses uh, that don't include Elohim God in the opening of the Bible. Okay, that's one of the reasons why I wanted us to, to read it together, because God is on our lips every single verse, every single sentence virtually. God, God is the one. And if you want to look, skip ahead for a second to chapter 2, verse 4. Okay, because this is the start of the next passage section of Genesis, which we'll get to at some point. But Genesis 2, verse 4 says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. And, and now in chapter 2, in this rewind, um, back to day six of creation, uh, this, this, this new name or description of God, of Elohim, is introduced. And it's, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. And that is, as we learn in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God's personal name. And, and so chapter 2 starts to explain God's creation of the first man and woman. And so the name Yahweh, it's a little more personal, right? It's a little more intimate. And so the first chapter and three verses of chapter two, Elohim, 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 Elohim. And then all of a sudden, verse four, we have Yahweh, Elohim. And so this is God's name, what he wanted Israel to know him by, which he told Moses in Exodus chapter three, like I said. And Yahweh, that, that personal name of God is derived from the Hebrew verb, Hayah, which means to be. He simply is. He is self-existent. So as the Almighty Creator, Yahweh is not dependent on anyone or anything for life. He himself is life. He is the source. He is the first cause of all things and all other causes. Everything needs a Creator except the Almighty Creator Himself. Because the question is sometimes asked, right? well, then, then who created God? Well, part of the very definition of God as the one who is so powerful and so knowledgeable as to be able to create absolutely everything that exists in the universe, including angels, like I said, which we cannot see, a being like this who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent does not and cannot have a Creator. There's no one and no thing like him, as his word says over and over and over. The Bible simply states that he is. And God says, my name is, I am who I am. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God. And so the theological term that we can kind of attach to that is aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. It's from the Latin, which Uh, in Latin it means from, and se means oneself. So he's from oneself, from himself. 
This is God's attribute of independent self-existence. Okay, he's from himself. He, he has no creator. God is the uncaused cause. He's the one who originated all things. He is the source of everything. And he's also the one who sustains everything that he created. Okay, like I said, that's why we sang that wonderful song earlier. God, the uncreated one. I just love even the title. And uh, when we're... When we're Proclaiming and singing praise to God. Uh, he is king forever. He is king forevermore. It's hard not to get emotional when you think about the, the grandness of who God is. He's the great I am, the eternally self-existent being who always was and always is and always will be. There's no other source of life. There's no one like him. I could go to many verses, but Isaiah 46 verse 9 He is speaking here and he says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Isaiah 46, 9. And by the way, it's good to note that the creator God has no need. He is complete in and of himself and he always has been. He did not create man as some of you may have heard in different just... um, sermons or or YouTube or whatever, God did not create man because he was lonely or because he needed us to be complete. He is and always has been complete and self-sufficient in and of himself. That's part of the very definition of him being God. And we understand, once again, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. So his name, I Am, tells us that he is eternal, And so it doesn't mean just future, but it also means eternity past. He's always existed. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90, verse 2. God did not even have a beginning. He just always has been. He is unchangeable. The theological term for that is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 calls him the father of lights with whom there is no shifting of shadow, no changing whatsoever. All of his attributes, his holiness, his power, his love, his wisdom, etc., etc., all of them are eternal and gloriously unchanging. So, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. True or not. True or not. And this is in stark contrast to the theory of evolution. In fact, it's the polar opposite. Biological evolution is the supposed process by which the first cell evolved into the diversity of life that we see today. Okay, this is the basic definition of evolution. It's the supposed process by which the first cell evolved into the diversity of life that we see today. And let me just give you from, from one of the sources, okay, unbelieving source, uh, this, this person named Marcelo Gleiser. He's a theoretical physicist and writer. He's a professor of natural philosophy, physics, and astronomy at Dartmouth College. Okay, another, in other words, another very smart guy. He wrote an article entitled, The Microbial Eve, like Adam and Eve, okay, The Microbial Eve, Our Oldest Ancestors Were Single-Celled Organisms. That was the title of his article. And I'm just going to share just a, a portion of it. Quote, If Victorians were offended by Charles Darwin's claim that we descended from monkeys, imagine their surprise if they heard that our first ancestor was much more primitive than that, a mere single-celled creature, our microbial Eve. We now know that all extant living creatures derive from a single common ancestor called Luca. L-U-C-A, which stands for the last universal common ancestor. It's hard to think of a more unifying view of life. All living creatures are linked to a single-celled creature, the root to the complex branching 
tree of life. If we could play the movie of life backward, we would find this little fellow at the starting point, the sole actor in what would become a very dramatic story lasting some four billion years. It goes on. After analyzing genes from 2,000 modern microbes sequenced over the past 20 years, researchers found 355 gene families that appeared frequently among the microbes, suggesting that they shared a common origin. In other words, according to these results, LUCA was likely a simple one-celled organism that lived where seawater and magma met at the ocean floor, the so-called hydrothermal vents. Okay, conclusion. For the moment now, evidence points to our microbial Eve as a tough underwater organism, able to thrive in very hard conditions. We should expect this from any organism that branched out to become every other creature that ever lived. Talk about genetic legacy, end quote. So I do want to make the distinction between macroevolution and microevolution. Evolution. Okay, macroevolution, no, we don't believe that. Microevolution, yes. Okay, evolution is not a curse word, dear Christians. <laughs> it's not a bad word, uh, but we have to understand it correctly, right? Because even people who believe in evolution think of it or communicate it um, in, in very unclear ways. So macroevolution describes the large-scale changes that are believed to be able to turn a blob of protoplasm into a person, right? Single cell organism over billions and millions, millions and billions of years of time. Somehow particles have eventually evolved into people. Okay, this is macroevolution, which we, 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 we don't buy into that theory. Microevolution, on the other hand, are those small scale changes in populations, adaptation within a species. Okay, like those seen in the famous Darwin's finches, right? That's the most famous example. And um, they saw that the finch population changes the sizes of their beaks regularly in response to different environmental pressures. And so that's what happens with microevolution. It happens all over the place. Okay, but the thing is, they remain finches. Okay, they don't turn into something else like a lizard okay, or whatever, a dog, or eventually into an ape or eventually into a person. Okay, no new traits or major changes take place in microevolution. And so um, Answers in Genesis says that speciation is probably a better term because when we just say evolution, it could mean either micro or, or macro and people get confused, right? So we should understand what we believe, what we understand from the facts, from science, from actual things that we can observe that are true and interpret it correctly, okay? So uh, a note regarding the origin of the universe, more foundations here, because you sometimes hear about the science of creation um, and just you read enough stuff and you run into uh, this kind of thing. So um, Genesis 1 verse 1, again, says, in the beginning, God created, Right? Um, I think we should understand that there are no valid scientific writings on the origin of creation, on Genesis, beginnings. Why is that? That's because no scientist was at creation. And nobody was there at creation. And so no scientist could ever reproduce the conditions that are necessary to conduct real science, to conduct a valid experiment. No one was there. To quote MacArthur again, he says, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who believe that Genesis is an inadequate presentation of what happened. And we have to marry it with scientific discovery in order to get to the truth. He says, get past that notion and you will free yourself from needless doubts and endless confusion. Get past the idea that science makes any contribution to an understanding of creation. It makes none. And this may shock you, but there's no such thing as the science of creation. And why is that? Because there's no scientific way to explain creation. It was not a natural event. 
It was a brief series of monumental supernatural events that cannot be explained by science. All science is based on observation and no one observed creation. And so just uh, he ends up by saying creation had no observers and cannot be repeated. It's not observable. It is not repeatable. It did not happen by any uniform, predictable, observable, repeatable, fixed natural laws. Creation was a series of supernatural, instantaneous, inexplicable miracles. That's what supernatural means, right? Above nature. That is why there is nowhere in the Genesis account where evolution is mentioned or even hinted at. There are no natural processes in creation. They are all supernatural. Evolution was not the means or a means by which God created. It was all miraculous and supernatural. There's only one record of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. You can believe it or you can reject it, but that's all there is, end quote. So again, these are just foundations because next Sunday and maybe the one after that, we're going to talk about this young earth, old earth, and um, different things, uh, issues that are more in um, Christendom. So uh, we're going to get there, but um, let us understand back to just atheistic evolution. Okay? And basically, basically, it is saying, it is teaching that nothing created everything. Okay? Do we get that, dear folks? Nothing created everything. And um, there are some atheists who argue that that's actually not what atheists are saying. Atheists do not claim that nothing created everything. But we're going to see just in a moment um, some examples. But uh, Ray Comfort writes this. He said, many atheists refuse to admit that they believe the entire universe came into being from nothing because it is a scientific impossibility. And they recognize how silly it sounds. If everything did not come from nothing, their alternative is to say that creation created itself. So they call it nature, right? Created itself. However, a thing cannot make itself. To do so would mean that it had to pre-exist before it existed. And therefore, it didn't create itself because it was already in existence. End quote. Hopefully that's understandable, uh, his argument there. But um, there is a number of people, atheistic evolution people, who have admitted to believing that nothing created everything, and they believe it enough to be able to put it in print. Okay? So let me just give you some examples here. Uh, Robert Matthews, a physicist at Ashton University in England, quote, It is now becoming clear that everything can, and probably did, come from nothing, end quote. From Cornell University's Askin Astronomer um, broadcast, quote, space and time both started at the Big Bang and therefore there was nothing before it, end quote. From another physicist, Paul Davies, from Arizona State University, he writes, Even if we don't have a precise idea of exactly what took place at the beginning, we can at least see that the origin of the universe from nothing need not be unlawful or unnatural or unscientific, end quote. Is any of this making any sense at all? Uh, Just a few more, and I don't mean to poke fun, but this is what, straight from the sources, okay? Uh, Another guy who wrote a book called Creation Ex Nihilo, Without God, Mark Vuletic, he said, quote, few people are aware of the fact that many modern physicists claim that things, perhaps even the entire universe, can indeed arise from nothing via natural processes, end quote. From the animal planet, which many of us kind of appreciate and like, quote, To understand these facts, we have to turn to science. Where did they all come from, and how did they get so darned outrageous? Well, it all started with nothing, end quote. Discover Magazine, quote, in their article, Physics and Math Cosmology, quote, to the average person, it might seem obvious that nothing can happen in nothing, 
But to a quantum physicist, nothing is, in fact, something. End quote. Can I share with you, uh, I, I memorized this quote from when I was 10 years old from a basketball player who I loved named Daryl Dawkins. He was one of the first basketball players who, as an 18-year-old, went straight from high school to the pros. He played for my favorite team, the Philadelphia 76ers. And he was known for saying zany, outrageous um, statements. And they were kind of funny, and they were quips, and kind of like Yogi Bear kind of thing. But he said, nothing is nothing, but it really is something, because nothing is something that isn't. So there's Daryl Dawkins, and then there's um, Discover Magazine, Physics and Math, Cosmology, saying a very similar thing here. <laughs> Do you get it? Uh, let me just give you uh, one more um, from our, our favorite Richard Dawkins from his book, The Ancestor's Tale. Quote, the fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved out of literally nothing is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to do it justice. Richard Dawkins. So once again, we read uh, the opening chapter and the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. A child could read and understand that creation was an act of God. How many times does he have to say God, 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 God? And also that he did it in a very short amount of time. Okay, the creation of the universe, according to Genesis 1, verse 1, was instantaneous. And the rest of the chapter tells us that God spoke and things came into being. And it was by the simple power of his word. And we're going to get to that the next few Sundays. So this was not a random evolutionary process that took God millions and billions of years. And yet... Much of the church has accepted millions and billions of years and accepted evolution, calling it the science, accepting it as fact, assuming it as fact. The question again, is Genesis, is the Bible meant to be taken at face value as narrative history or merely a story to be interpreted symbolically like all the other ancient legends and myths that man has come up with? And the critical question following that is, will we, as Christians, as the church, will we start with God's word as the explanation for the beginnings of all things? Or will we start with man's word and man's wisdom and man's so-called truth called science? The good doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who before he became one of the greatest expositors of God's word in church history, was actually a doctor. He said, quote, The Bible is God's book. It is a revelation of God, and our thinking must always start with God. Much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective, so interested in ourselves, and so egocentric, end quote. I agree completely with with what he said um, a century or so ago. Are we going to start with the Bible and what it says and what it means by what it says? Or are we going to start with the theory of evolution, with so-called science, which teaches the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything? And Romans 1 Uh, You can either turn there or just listen to me, but Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world... His, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, 
so that they are without excuse. So nobody anywhere in the entire planet has any excuse for not believing in a creator God and not seeking to know him. And God has given us his creation to know that there is a creator. He's also, Romans chapter 2, given us a conscience in knowing the difference between right and wrong and in accusing us when we do right, when we do wrong and encouraging us when we do right. And so, Romans 1, 18 through 20 is very important. And um, Henry Morris, uh, who some of you appreciate and know from Institute of Creation Research, he says that science does give us tools to understand our universe and the laws of nature that we can observe today. And this understanding provides compelling evidence for creation. And as he writes about the physical sciences, talks about the physical science, he says the laws of science demonstrate that mass and energy were created to last. Our place in the universe is perfectly balanced for life. And as we consider Romans 1 that I just read, um, and the fact that the universe, the creation, demands a creator. The universe demands a designer. He writes, everyone knows the universe looks designed. Naturalists want to explain the universe as a necessary outcome of laws and initial conditions instead of a roll of the dice. So the Big Bang Theory, inflation, and the search for structure in the cosmic background radiation are all part of this tradition. But again, as we consider in the light of Romans 1, okay, and uh, verse 20. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Uh, just thinking about the unimaginable power required to create the cosmos and everything that exists in it. I want to share just a little bit more from uh, Henry Morris's book called Exploring the Evidence for Creation. And um, just uh, fascinating discoveries okay, that real scientists, uh, both, both secular and religious, have made. Um, this is real science which always affirms what the Bible says. And so just speaking of the, the just unimaginable power of the Creator... Um, he writes, beyond the power that lights the universe with stars is our creator who carefully balances the laws of nature. A star is a continuous explosion of awesome power. The power to create a universe with a billion galaxies, each with a billion stars, is beyond imagination. To create mass and energy can only be done by a creator who is outside of nature. And the creation of the laws of nature themselves demonstrates an even greater power. These laws are balanced so that our sun provides the energy to us day by day. These laws are balanced so that the molecules within us can use that energy. And that's the wisdom and knowledge that's required for all of this to, to even be able to, to happen. Um, regarding the incredible and exquisite order of the universe. He writes, the laws of nature are finely tuned so that our sun can burn and provide us with the energy we need. Light from stars and the sun begins with hydrogen. Hydrogen is the most plentiful element in the universe. And the sun is a large ball of very hot hydrogen. It is more than a hundred times larger than the earth. And the energy of the sun comes from explosions of hydrogen and these are nuclear explosions, which are much more powerful than chemical explosions. And then there's gravity. Gravity draws all the sun's hydrogen together, creating intense pressure. And in the core of the sun, the huge forces cause nuclear fusion reactions. Hydrogen atoms fuse together into helium and release huge amounts of energy. And these explosions do not cause the sun to suddenly blow up and then go cold. Actually, the balanced laws of physics hold our sun together. Gravity pulls the atoms back as each explosion pushes them away. And this balance keeps the billions of stars in billions of galaxies burning. And uh, there's another section here that he talks about the Earth being uniquely created. And just really, really um, fascinating facts here about the planets and everything. But... um. He writes, our earth was created for life 
and our solar system is filled with amazing planets, but none are perfect for life except for the Earth. A few examples. Mercury is the closest planet to the sun. It gets very hot and very cold. It has a very slow spin. The side facing the sun is heated to 800 degrees Fahrenheit, while the side away from the sun is cooled to negative 298 degrees Fahrenheit. Venus. Venus is hotter than Mercury, yet farther away from the sun. Venus has an atmosphere 90 times thicker than the Earth's. Heat is trapped in the clouds and heats the entire planet to 931 degrees Fahrenheit. So a fun fact is that one day in Venus is longer than one year in Venus. Got it? (laughs) So the, the spinning is slower than the orbit, right? So, um, you'll get it. So, Mars is similar to Earth in many ways. Um, a day on Mars is 24.7 hours. And it's, Mars is tilted 25 degrees, which is just two more degrees than the Earth. At its warmest, it can get to be a comfortable 67 degrees Fahrenheit, similar to today's weather. It has two small moons, but Mars is smaller than the Earth. And the gravity on Mars is only a third of the Earth's. Without enough gravity, Mars is unable to hold a larger atmosphere. What atmosphere it has is made of gases we cannot breathe. Without much of an atmosphere, many meteoroids hit Mars, and it also gets extremely cold at night. Uh, Last year's Jupiter, I'll, I'll share that with you. Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system. It is 10 times smaller than the sun and 10 times larger than the earth. Jupiter spins faster than any other planet with a day of nine hours and 55.5 minutes. Its fast spin causes tremendous storms. And the big red spot on Jupiter is actually a huge hurricane. So all to say, each planet in our solar system demonstrates that the earth is unique and it's especially created for life. And I could share with you a bunch of other very interesting, wonderful things, but um, we are running short on time. So back to Genesis 1, verse 1. This is the work of God, the creator. Okay? God created. Bara, that's the key verb here, again, in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, verse 1. W.E. Vine says that though bara, that word which means create, is a precisely correct technical term to suggest cosmic material creation from nothing, bara also is a rich theological vehicle for communicating the sovereign power of God who originates and regulates all things to his glory. So when you look at every use of the word bra in the book of Genesis. Um, every single one, 1, 1, 121, 127, 2, 3, 2, 4, 5, 1, 5, 2, 6, 7, non, non. All the uses of bra in the book of Genesis. God is the subject of this verb in every use. And the conclusion is, should be obvious. It's inescapable. We can't get around it. Elohim, the almighty creator God, he made absolutely everything. Believe it or not. Okay, and the, the, the truth, the truth, the one truth is that someday, someday, whether you believe it or not today, okay, someday for sure you will believe it. And this would be the day of your death. Okay, the day when you meet your maker, you meet your creator, you will believe it without any hesitation. And Philippians 2 comes to mind again, right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lord in all that that means, he's God, he's the creator. And you must know the creator of the universe is also the judge of the universe. Revelation 20, verse 11 and on. Okay, author, author within uh, or extension of that word author is authority. 
God is the author and he's the authority. And so this is our invitation to anyone who has not yet submitted to Christ, submitted their heart, their life to the Lord Jesus Christ to believe and receive him as your personal Savior and Lord. Today is the day to receive his grace through faith, through faith alone in him. It's the gift that he offers to you, the gift of knowing God, the gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life only through him. He died for your sins and he says, come to me, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you the gift of eternal life. He says, come to me, turn and live and live. That's his promise. So as we wrap up here, Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Verse 2, that's what it says. And so the cliffhanger, okay, there's this thing called the gap theory. And then there's these things called the day-age theory. And then there's theistic evolution. Okay, all examples of compromises that the church makes with the world's philosophies. And so let me just give you a little bit of food for thought here as we wrap up. Okay? If you don't think God created the heavens and the earth as a finished product, but you think he needed so-called evolution, how do you think God is going to create the new heavens and new earth? Like he talks about in Revelation 21. You think it's going to take billions of years for him to make the new heavens and new earth? This is all against what God's word says, dear people. Colossians 2, verse 8. You should jot it down. Paul writes to the Colossians, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Colossians 2.8 Who are you going to believe first? Where are you going to start? That's what I ask. Another theologian, which is, we're, getting to, we're going to get to the end very shortly here. Another theologian, Dr. Bruce Hurst, another ex-medical doctor, saved Christian. He says, quote, one of the main problems with this Genesis conundrum is that we don't start with God. We don't let God simply, naturally speak to us, but we inject ideas and teachings that have been foisted off on us from our secular, basically godless educational system. The result is that we come to Genesis with a host of preconceptions of what it must mean in order to fit into the evolutionary dogma that most of us have been forced to take at face value. Dear folks, this is a huge part of the the church, Christendom today. The truth is that the more one studies evolution, the more it becomes apparent that you need more faith to accept it as gospel truth than to accept the actual true gospel of God. One must try to read Genesis as if they had been He says one should, one must try to read Genesis as if they had been stranded on a desert island away from all secular pseudo-scientific interpretations of Genesis, end quote. And I agree with this man wholeheartedly. So Colossians 2 also says this, and this is closing encouragement for you all. Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3. Christ himself, who is the true knowledge of God's mystery, says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, actual true wisdom and knowledge. And then 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. So when we consider Psalm 19, which... Pastor Bill kindly read to us earlier, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the expanse is telling of his greatness. Wow, the wonders of the universe should compel us to worship our wondrous, wonderful God. And we sing along with Isaac Watts, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. 
I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. And we'll use that as a to be continued for next week. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being the God of all creation and Lord of heaven and earth. And thank you for your clear word, even in the very first opening sentence of the Bible simply states that in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. Now I pray, God, as we've covered a, a number of things and said uh, this, uh, a bunch of a bunch of things, Lord, I, I pray that it does, as Dave prayed earlier, uh, cause us to look to you in that much more admiration and worship and even love, even love as we consider who you are and all that you've done for us that we might know you. What are, what are we, God, sons of men, that um, that you are mindful of us? And yet you have called us, you have given us purpose, you have redeemed us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and you have made us part of your will and your purposes to bring glory and honor to yourself. So for that, we are grateful, God, and um, we ask that you would continue to bless this series as it proceeds in the coming weeks. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.